How's everybody? Okay, so um, we're going to try to redo <laughs> tonight what, what I tried to do last week, but it just was weird. Um, <clears throat> so if you have questions, write them down or something, and we'll have question and answer at the end. Is that okay? So I can get through the material without getting sidetracked and losing my train of thought and then looking at a slide and saying, what the heck is that? I don't know. I just wrote it this afternoon, but I don't know what I was even telling myself. So we've been talking about hell and uh, looking at all of the scriptures. Well, not all of them, but doing a pretty good overview of the scriptures that talk about hell in the Bible. Uh, and, and I try to throw out kind of the beginning little just ideas or almost um, just some critical thinking about this whole idea of eternal conscious torment. Um, Now remember, Jesus comes out of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, Every writer in the New Testament is also Jewish. Uh, The Apostle Paul is Jewish. All 12 of the disciples were Jewish. So they're coming out of a Jewish culture. Now, in the Bible... There is no references for any kind of torment or punishment or really any kind of references about the afterlife. If you want proof of that, then try to find a Jewish person today who believes in hell (laughs) or who believes in eternal conscious torment. You won't find one. So, for example... Taking from um, the Jewish Encyclopedia, which is online, I'm going to give you a quote. It says, according to Jewish teachings, hell is not entirely physical. Rather, it can, com- it can be compared to a very intense feeling of shame. People are ashamed of their misdeeds, and this constitutes suffering, which makes up for the bad deeds. When one has so deviated from the will of God, one is said to be in Sheol or in hell. This is not meant to refer to some point in the future, but to the very present moment. The gates of return, this is important, the gates of return or repentance are said to always be open. And so one can align his will with God at any moment. Being out of alignment with God's will is itself the punishment, according to the Torah. So their idea of hell is that you're in it right now. (laughs) I was talking to a lady who has had a very difficult life, had a very difficult childhood, had all kinds of uh, abuse that she suffered and, and things like that. And I was trying to explain to her the Christian concept of hell and the Christian concept of Jesus died for your sins and all this stuff around Easter time. And, uh, and when I told her, when we were talking about hell, she says, I'm in hell right now. She says, this is hell. And, and then because her life had been what it was, she said, made the comment, you know, I said, well, you know, they believe that God is very angry. And she said, well, I don't feel very fondly towards him myself. <laughs> Kind of mutual. Kind of reminded me of that scene if you've ever seen Forrest Gump, when Sergeant Dan is on the ship in the middle of the storm and he's raging at at God and telling God to bring it on. Kind of reminded me of that. But I think 
we need to not minimize the fact that people do live in hell. And according to Jewish teaching, the punishment for sin is the sin itself and what it does to you internally and also missing the will of God. But this part is important. They said the gates of return are said to always be open. So when you look at the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, it says in there, her gates shall never be shut. So it has this Jewish idea that the, that the return is always possible, right? The other thing that's interesting, because the Bible never mentions anything about the Old Testament, never mentions anything about going to a place of punishment or torment after a person dies, it, it, it raises the, the, the wages of sin is death, Paul said. He didn't say eternal conscious torment. Uh, when Adam and Eve ate at the tree of knowledge, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. So the understanding from a Jewish perspective is that physical death is the result of sin and that there was nothing beyond that. We'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. So Jesus used three words, or there's three words in the New Testament. Jesus didn't use all three of them. Jesus uses two words for hell in the original language. One is Gehenna. The other is Hades. We looked at Gehenna. Gehenna is a physical, literal, physical, this-worldly place in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, well, I mean, obviously it's still there. It's the Valley of Hamon. But it, at the time of Jesus, it was said to be the garbage dump. Um, if you heard Jamie Englehart, who was with us on Sunday, he mentioned to you that Josephus talks about when the Romans came in and ransacked uh, Jerusalem, that they threw the bodies into uh, Gehenna and the bodies were burned and that there was a river that would flow through uh, that valley. And according to Jamie, and I trust his scholarship because he's, he's pretty well studied, um, the Dead Sea was a sulfur sea that would spontaneously combust uh, and burn. And it was known to the first century Jews, uh, it was called the Lake of Fire. So when the bodies were thrown into Gehenna and the rains would come, then their ashes would be washed and that river would end up in the Dead Sea or in the Lake of Fire. So much of what we think of as a otherworldly punishment was really the end of the Old Covenant nation of Israel that Jesus was warning them about if they rejected him as their Messiah. So he's talking about a this-world national judgment at a this-world physical location. I covered that in a previous teaching. So if he's talking to his first-century audience who does not have as part of their religion a God who sends people to eternal conscious torment, and the reason he came, Jesus, was to save people from that eternal conscious torment, don't you think he should have elaborated on that a little bit more? I mean, wouldn't it be uh, ethical? Wouldn't it be conscientious? Wouldn't it have behooved him to elaborate on the realities of life after death more if it was of such literally grave concern? Make sense? Now, the word Hades is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and it's to translate the Hebrew word Sheol, and Sheol simply means the grave. 
So in your uh, uh, King James versions, so King James, New King James, there's 65 appearances of the word Hades in the Bible, and that's including the Septuagint. 31 of those are used as hell in the Old Testament. It gets translated as hell, but the word is actually Sheol. So Hades and Sheol are the same thing, and they both get translated as hell, right? 31 times it's translated as the pit and three times as the grave. Now, this is the interesting thing. Because the word Sheol does not translate to the modern idea of hell as a place of an afterlife, an eternal conscious torment, then modern translators no longer translate it that way. Because the word itself simply means death. Now, if you want to leave it as hell, then let's be consistent and use the word hell throughout the scriptures. And what you find out about Sheol is that Jacob went there. (laughs) One of the founders of the faith, the, the father of the 12 tribes, the one who started it all. In Genesis 37, 35 and Genesis 44, 29 through 31, it says that Jacob went to, and your modern translations say, to the grave, but it is to Sheol. Now think, if your translators had been consistent and they had translated it hell, then you would have to believe that the founder of the feast, so to speak, the father of the twelve tribes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fact, God is called the God of Jacob more times in the Bible than almost any other name that he's referenced as, and we would have to say, Jacob went to hell. So is Jacob in a place where he's condemned by God and suffering eternally and consciously? No, obviously not. Remember Job? What did God say about Job? Remember in the beginning? Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the, the earth. Perfect and upright in his ways. Fears God, right? And yet, in Job 14, 13, you find that he longed for Sheol. Now, wouldn't it make sense if Sheol is just death, that uh, he was longing to, to die because his life, he was so miserable. He was having what we would call in the counseling department suicidal ideation. <laughs> right? That makes sense, right? Um, but he wouldn't be longing for eternal conscious torment because he'd just be leaving one bad deal for the next, one hell for a worse hell, right? And what kind of deal is that? David, King David, a man after what? God's own heart, right? God's choice to lead the kingdom. Man after God's own heart. He spoke of going to Sheol in Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15. <laughs> so did David want to go to hell? Did he want to go to the place of con- being condemned by God and of eternal conscious torment? Of course not. So the word simply means death or the grave. There is no moral or belief distinctions at all. When you're talking about Hades, what the Jewish people before the time of Christ and the, 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 the understanding of the languages that Jesus Christ would have used, that the apostles would have used, that the apostle Paul would have used, that the early church fathers used, all translate Sheol as Hades. So when they're reading it, and if Jesus is talking about Hades as a place of eternal conscious torment, then he's reading that Jacob went to Hades. He's reading that Job longed to go to Hades. He's reading that David spoke of going to Hades. Does that make any sense to anybody? Because in fact, it's just the grave. It's just death. 
There's no moral or belief distinctions. It's just a place that everyone went when they died. I was talking to, I can't remember if Jamie said this in his message, but or when we were talking later, but he said he was driving down the road and he saw a sign that said heaven or hell. And he told his wife both. <laughs> it's both. He says, when I die, my soul's going to heaven, but my body's going to hell. Because <laughs> it simply means the grave. Collier's Encyclopedia says this. It says, first, hell. The word hell stands for the Hebrew Sheol. Just so you don't think I'm making this up. Stands for the Hebrew Sheol and Hades of the Septuagint and New Testament. Since Sheol in the Old Testament referred simply to the abode of the dead without moral distinctions, the word hell is not a happy translation. Isn't that funny? So what did the Greeks teach? The Greeks taught the immorality, immortality, thank you, the immortality of the soul. This actually isn't even necessarily a Hebrew idea. It creeps into Hebrew thought after Alexander the Great conquers the world and basically Hellenizes it. Remember when you read Hellenite, not hell, but like Hellenizes it, right? Like the Greeks, made it Greek. When you... Right. When you read in the Bible, you read about the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Jews who had adopted Greek way of thinking. Uh, who's the guy? Um, there's Josephus of Philo is someone else that writes, uh, that's kind of a contemporary of Josephus and writes in that first, uh, second temple, first century, second temple Judaism context. He was probably a Hellenized Jew or, or he, he imported a lot of Greek thinking. So the Greeks taught the immor, Get it right this time. Of the soul. And uh, the netherworld, Hades was the netherworld where the soul goes after it dies. Got it? Now, in all of the New Testament appearances, or where Jesus uses the word Hades, or really actually all the New Testament appearances of it, all but one, all but one place in the Bible where Hades is translated as hell, has little, if any, relationship to the afterlife, rewards or punishments. And that one exception is Luke's parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which we'll look at in a minute, in which the rich man finds himself after death in Hades and in anguish in his flame, while in contrast the angels take Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham, described as a state of comfort. So Hades is used ten times in the New Testament and only one time does it refer to someone who's in punishment. Now again, how diligent is this? If, if God's whole business is to save souls from hellfire, how diligent is he being about it? How diligent is even the Bible being about telling us about this place of eternal conscious torment? I mean, you have to ask these questions. People don't want you to ask these questions. You, you can't ask them in most churches because they'll throw you out <laughs> and tell you that's where you're going because <laughs> you don't question us. But really, I was taught in Bible school, if you're going to establish a doctrine, because there's a verse, and, and it, it's kind of strange the way they do this, but there's a verse in the Bible that says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And it's talking about testimony against someone who committed a crime. 
So you don't just take one person's word. You have to have at least two or three that witnessed it, right? But what we were taught was when you're doing... Uh, when you're teaching and you're studying the Bible, you need to have two or three witnesses, two or three places in the scripture that say the same thing before you try to establish it as a doctrine. And you, you'll hear that over and over and over again in Bible-believing, especially charismatic churches. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And the truth is, there's only one witness in the whole Bible about hell being a place where you go after life, after you die that talks about any kind of torment. doesn't that, maybe that doesn't concern anybody, but it bothers me. Because we built our whole religion on this. The whole point of it is to go out and get people saved and get them to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so they can, you know, there's there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And, and we terrorize people and we terrorize children uh, because we tell them that they're going to go to this place or whatever. I remember being terrorized as a kid. We get people to come down the altar. We terrorize teenagers. I know people that ha- have had to be treated for post-traumatic stress disorder because of these things. And you may think, oh, that, that doesn't mean anything. Listen, do, do you understand that the clinical definition for someone to have real, true post-traumatic stress disorder, death or their life being threatened has to be involved? That's one of the criteria. So there is nothing more terrifying, especially to a child, especially to a teenager or any human being, than the thought that their creator is going to take pleasure in tormenting them with the worst kind of punishments and the worst kind of torments for all eternity. It's terrifying. And so that's what we build on. We terrify people to get them to buy into what we're saying, and we use such a high emotion of fear that they don't even want to critically, that they don't, they don't critically think through it. I remember thinking, oh well, you know, if they're right, I better do it because, you know, I can't afford to be wrong. Because who can afford to be wrong? How many ever heard that argument? You know, somebody come in and say, well, I believe in reincarnation, or I'm an atheist and I believe you just go to the ground when you die. And the Christian stands up and says, well, you know what? If you're right and I'm wrong, then we're both just going to be worm food. Or if you're right and I'm wrong, then we'll both just get to come back. The only problem is, according to most teachings of reincarnation, you've got to work your way out of stuff. And maybe you've got to work your way out of believing that God is like that. Which means you get to do the same life over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and how many times have you done this then? But let's go back to the Christian argument. Um, the, right? I mean, with the Christian... So, if you're right and I'm wrong, then, you know... I'm going to be okay because I'm going to heaven, but you're going to burn for eternity. Anybody ever heard that argument? So I'm going to play the odds. I'm play the odds, and I'm believing Jesus. Come on, guys, really? Is that the best we can do? I mean, those were the arguments I was taught in evangelism class. When you go out on the street and hand out dumb tracks and those chick tracks that scare everybody to death. You ever seen a chick track? A chick track, and I'm not. I'm not using a microaggressive term for ladies. <laughs> and it's not a little swimsuit edition. It's, it's 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 published it's a little thing that's published by Chick Publishing and they're little comic strips about how somebody didn't believe in Jesus and they went to hell and burned for all eternity and then it has a sinner's prayer at the end. And so we, you know, evangelism classes. Here's how you share with your friends. Friendship evangelism. 
Go, I mean, this is what we teach people. Think about the ethics of this. It makes sense if hell exists, but friendship evangelism, go and be friends with people so you can get them to think like you. So basically, it's a crash course in people manipulation and how to offer fake friendship because you just want, but, but you think you're doing it right. You think you're, you're, you're saving souls. And how much money do we pump into gospel crusades? And how much money do we pump into gospel television and all this stuff? And what if all of it's a farce? What if none of it's true? There are people, they don't even know what to do with Jesus if it's not true. People that will hear this and they will say, well, what's the point? I've had leaders tell me, well, what's the point? I might as well just go out and live, live like a, a whoremonger then. I might as well just go out and, you know, party and live it up and, have sex with everybody and when I'm like, really? The threat of hell is really the only thing that's stopping you? Because if that's true, then that's really what's in your heart. we got a problem. That maybe we need to look at. <laughs> and one verse. One verse. And because of mistranslations. And because of a religious system that really wants to keep people locked into, uh, uh, really, 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 really wants to keep people in bondage. I- I'm sorry, it just does. Wants to keep them in fear. I know people that have obsessive compulsive disorders. I know people that have anxiety disorders. I think of one person right now, a preacher that I know, that his mom used to use hell to, to get him to obey. If you... T- if you tell your mommy a lie, if you don't honor your mommy and daddy, then God's going to send you to hell. You're going to, if you die tonight, you're going to burn in hell. And to this day, in his latter adult life, has an anxiety disorder because of that nonsense. But you're supposed to judge things by their fruit. Jesus said, we'll know them by their fruits. So what's the fruit of the Spirit? Is fear a fruit of the Spirit? Is anxiety a fruit of the Spirit? Is sitting there biting your nails and you don't know why and pulling at your hair and all this stuff. Uh, obsessive. I knew a guy. It was the true story. There was a guy that came who he believed, you know, at least the Baptists believe once saved, always saved. At least the Catholics make it very clear. Don't do these seven sins. Join the church. Go to confessional. And we'll pray for you when you get to purgatory. But at least you're going to get out. Right? But there are places, especially Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, that they they teach, you know, any sin that you commit that's unconfessed, you're going to go to hell. And so there's this one guy, he developed such a mental disorder that he felt like he had to confess every single sin. And he finally drove himself so crazy worrying about hell, worrying about this God. I'd worry about this God too, who's worse than Hitler, who wants to do away with the vast majority of humanity and torture them, not just in a temporary uh, burning chamber, but in an eternally burning chamber. Right? And so he took Jesus seriously. One of the places where Jesus talked about hell, and he said, if your arm, if your hand offends, you cut it off. And he couldn't stop some bad habits. So he got out a saw. I kid you not. He got an electric saw and tried to cut off his arm and ended up in, in one of the mental hospitals. That's a true story. So if we judge things by their fruit, how do we judge it? All right. So let me give you a quote from Josephus. Josephus, first century historian. Because here's some of the beliefs around Hades that were around at the time of Jesus. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is because 
if this is what the people believed when Jesus showed up on the scene, then don't you think if God loves people and is trying to save them and wants you to go out on the street and hand out tracts and wants you to go manipulate your friends by being their friends first and then get them to come into the kingdom by doing friendship evangelism and all that stuff, don't you think that Jesus might have been a little clearer to that culture? Do you, don't, do you think it would be fair of him to talk about a local place like we do in Pueblo? There's a part of town called Belmont, right? And so when he would say Gehenna, they were thinking a place. So could you imagine today somebody talking about Belmont, but they're really referring to eternal conscious torment after in the afterlife, and they don't make it clear. <laughs> they don't clear it up. Here's what Josephus said. Now, as to Hades, wherein the souls of the righteous and the unrighteous are detained, a place of custody for souls in which angels, not demons with pitchforks, in which angels are appointed as guardians to them, who distribute to them, listen, temporary punishment, agreeable to everyone's behaviors and manners. This is the discourse concerning Hades. He's talking about this is the Jewish belief in hell. Wherein the souls of all men are confined until a proper season, which God hath determined when he will make a resurrection of all men from the dead. Can I just tell you the truth? In the first century context, that resurrection happened when Jesus raised from the dead. That's why the early church, your, your creeds, your Nicene Creed, your Apostles' Creed, I mean, there are preachers that are so ignorant, they don't even know what the Nicene Creed is. They've never even heard of it. They've never even read the Apostles' Creed. They don't even understand that that was the rule of, of Christian faith that, that, that was the fruit of three centuries of Christianity. And nowhere in there does it mention eternal conscious torment. But it does mention Hades, and you know what it says about Hades? It says Jesus on Saturday, on Holy Saturday, He died on Good Friday. He descent, he, he was silent on Holy Saturday. He rose on Sunday. What was He doing on Holy Saturday? According to the Apostles' Creed and the writing of the early church fathers, He was descending into Hades. And why did he descend into Hades? So that he could raise, so that he could empty the place out. So the Jewish belief was that it was a temporary holding place. Temporary holding place. Not eternal conscious torment. Temporary holding place. For the souls of the righteous and the unrighteous. And people who were unrighteous were punished, yes, but not eternally and not unjustly. They were punished temporarily according to their deeds for the purpose of training and teaching and purification until the time that the Messiah would come and empty the place out. And so when Jesus raised from the dead, He led captivity captive. He descended. He led captivity captive. He defeated death on the grave. That's why he says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I have the key. I am he who was alive and was dead, and I am alive again, and I have the keys of death, I have the keys of Hades, and I have the keys of the grave. What did it mean to have the keys of Hades? It meant he had plundered the place, and he had emptied the place out. Which is why one of the Gospels says that there were, there were righteous people that raised from the dead and walked the streets of Jerusalem. Because for the, for, for, for the first century people, the resurrection happened in Jesus. 
And that's why Paul said, because they thought it was soul sleep. That's why Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, that was good preaching, Aaron. That would have been a great Easter message. Darn, I didn't think of it a month ago. Come with me to Luke 16. (laughs) Yeah, that would be good. That would preach good, wouldn't it? Luke 16, verse 19. This is a parable of rich man, <clears throat> the rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid, his, laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was when the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom. Only place in the Bible that talks about torment in Hades. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip his, the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, now listen to this part. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides, besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who cannot, those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can you pass, I'm sorry, nor can those from there pass to us. Do I need to read that again? I kind of jumbled that. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. All right. First of all, nowhere in there does it say, (laughs) nowhere in there does it say, that um, the punishment is eternal. And you have to remember, it's a parable. So a par- what is a parable? A parable, by definition, is a made-up story. If it is not a made-up story, when Jesus said... He was teaching a parable, the definition of the term. When it says he did, he, he taught all these things in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them, it says in one place in the Gospels. Right? A parable, by definition, is a story that's made up. You can't say that that's a true story, because that's what the Holy Spirit showed you, because that makes Jesus a liar. Because he actually says he was teaching parables. And it says, when, without a parable, he did not teach them when he was teaching the multitudes. So it's a made-up story, number one. Number two, the purpose of the parable is to teach a moral or a spiritual lesson. Right? 
So if this is a parable, which it is, and if it's to teach a moral and a spiritual lesson, what is the moral or spiritual lesson that is being taught? Is the spiritual lesson that's being taught, you're going to suffer for all eternity because you rejected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is that anywhere in the parable? This is the only place that talks about torment in Hades. And Jesus neglects to mention, the only place, and it neglects to mention that the reason he went there was because he rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, where do we get off saying we believe the Bible? We believe it from Genesis to maps. We believe it from beginning to end. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Then we go out and lie to people. And we tell them stuff that Jesus never said. I mean, really, where do we get off with that? It's because we don't know. It's because we don't know. Why did this man go to the place of torment? Why did he go there? Let's look at it again. I closed my Bible too soon. Jesus tells us why, why one's blessed and the other isn't. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. That's the reason. It's the only reason given in the parable. So what's the spiritual lesson? Is is Jesus trying to teach that... Um, I mean, first of all, don't let people intimidate you with this parable because, okay, the man's in torment and he's in flames, but nowhere in there does it say it's forever. And the Jewish belief was that it was a temporary place of punishment. And there is another place in the Talmud, which is also something that gives us insight into what they believed, the Jews believed at the time of Jesus, where they said that that time of temporary punishment in Hades could be no longer than a year. So just because the man's in torment does not mean he's going to suffer there for all eternity. It's a lie. We have to read that and force that onto the text. Are you seeing it? But the whole stinking system is built on this. Now, if we read this today, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Why this man's in Hades being tormented. And it really ought to scare us as Americans if it's about not taking care of the poor because we are, I mean, we complain about our economy and our lifestyle and all that stuff, but we do have one of the highest standard of livings on average. And almost everybody in churches are doing better than most people around the world. Like you're in the top like 1% practically or 2% around the world. So that really ought to bother us, especially if the developing nations are the Lazarus sitting at our gate. But you don't hear that being preached in the Bible Belt, because they're all Republicans. I don't have anything against Republicans, but I'm just saying, we're pro-life, but we don't want you to have health care. We're pro-life, but we don't want the abortion rate to go down because we don't want to pay for birth control. 
Makes no sense. All right, I'll get off my political soapbox. Let's go back to the world of Jesus, all right? Here's what they believed. Deuteronomy 28. I'm not going to take you there. I'll just take you there mentally. The first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 say this. If you diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments, you obey him. Then all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Blessed will you be in the city and blessed will you be in the field. Blessed will be your basket and your storehouse. Blessed will be the increase of your flocks, the increase of your cattle, the increase of your silver and your gold. If you do not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to do what is right in his sight, and if you ignore his commandments and you disobey him, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed will you be in your in the city, and cursed will you be in the field. Um, um, you, you get it. It's the opposite, right? You're going to be cursed coming in, cursed going out. And guess what? You're going to be broke. There's going to be famine. You're going to be poor. You're going to be hungry. So the belief was, if you were obedient, you were blessed and wealthy. And if you were disobedient, you were cursed and poor. And can I tell you that if we believe that God has ordained the haves to have and the have-nots to have not, and we say the haves are righteous and the have-nots are unrighteous, is that really the heart of God or is that simply a, a mass mind manipulation in order to maintain social order so the haves can stay the haves and keep the have-nots down? you get it? And so their belief was that they were, was that. So Jesus is not really teaching about the afterlife. He's teaching about the nature of things and the nature of God. Really what he's saying is, you, you guys have God all wrong. Okay. Here's another way. And that's the whole reason he taught in parables. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, we could look at it, but I don't want to take the time to do that. Matthew chapter 8, it says, He taught them in parables that seeing they may see but not perceive, and hearing they may hear but not understand, because their hearts were hardened, and their eyes were dull. And so in other words, he couldn't tell them things outright because they couldn't hear them. So he used parables and stories and things that had shock value to try and wake them up. Because sometimes you can hear something in a story that gets your attention better than if somebody just tries to tell you directly. That's just a proven psychological fact. (laughs) You got it? But here's the other thing. This whole imagery is typical of how the Jews thought about the kingdom of heaven. Because remember Jesus, when he's breaking bread, he said, I won't eat of this again until I eat with you in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And there are several places in the Gospels that talks about the table and the banquet and the wedding feast and all that stuff that's in the kingdom of heaven, right? So bread and wealth is a, is a type of spiritual wealth and spiritual position. Purple is a metaphorical color for royalty and spiritual position. You see it? 
When Jesus, when, when the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus and says, you know, heal my demon-possessed daughter, what does Jesus turn around and say to her? He says, it's not fit to take, what, the children's bread and give it to dogs. Why was she a dog? Because she wasn't a Jew. And he qualifies it. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's not fit to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Dogs was a term that was used for the Gentiles. Guess what? It was a term, it's a derogatory term, that was used by the Jews to describe the Gentiles. Who was coming and licking Lazarus' sores? The dogs. And what was he eating? The crumbs that fell from the table. So he's using first century imagery to describe the Gentile nation. And guess what the name Lazarus actually translates to in the Hebrew? Eleazar. Does the name Eleazar mean anything to you? Does it sound familiar to you? In Genesis with Father Abraham, who shows up in the story... (laughs) Right? When he, before he's a father, and God shows up to him and he says, what are you going to give me? <laughs> Seeing my wife goes childless, and Eleazar of Damascus, a Gentile, is going to be the heir of my fortune. And God says, no, the, the Jewish line will start with you. The inheritance will go through Isaac, so that Eleazar, Lazarus, doesn't get the inheritance. Because Lazarus is a Gentile. The dogs are Gentiles. And so, and the entire scope of Luke, this isn't repeated by Matthew or Mark, this story. Don't you think, for the love of God, don't you think if there was eternal conscious torment in Hades, that, that Matthew and Mark might have thought it was important to share? Uh, maybe a little bit more important than a sower went out to sow. <laughs> which you find in all three of the Gospels. Why don't you find this in there? Because Luke has a specific purpose. And his specific purpose is he's trying to show that Jesus came for those specifically, to restore those specifically, that the self-righteous, legalistic system of religion that had been built up as a power structure in Israel, had rejected and disenfranchised and said was under the curse of God. That's the whole point of his gospel. And you'll see it throughout if you know what to look for. It's why Luke uses the word sinner more than any other of the gospel writers. It's why the story of Zacchaeus is only found in Luke's gospel because Zacchaeus was a dirty tax collector that had defrauded all of his Jewish brethren for the Romans and Jesus, what, went to Zacchaeus' house. It's why only in Luke's gospel do you have the parable of the prodigal son. It's why only in Luke's gospel do you have the parable of the lost sheep where he leaves the 99 to go and find the one. Because it's all about, and, and the whole point of Luke's gospel is you guys have it all wrong. You're sitting there in your judgment seats. You're sitting there in your self-righteousness. And you don't get the first thing about the gospel of the kingdom or the message of Jesus who came to reach the disenfranchised, who came to, to bring restoration and love and healing to everybody. It's not that he came to send everybody to hell. It's that everybody is included and everybody can be restored because of the power of Jesus Christ. 
That's the point. So of course he's going to tell this story because what he's doing is he's shocking that religious mind. He's telling him, you've got it exactly wrong. You think you're feasting at God's table spiritually and you think the Gentiles are down there barely getting the crumbs and that they're dogs. You think that because you're prosperous and you have a position in society that gives you power, that you are chosen and blessed by God and you look down on others who aren't the same as you and aren't as privileged as you and aren't as positioned as you and you say that it's the curse of God and Jesus comes right along in this parable and he reverses the whole stinking order and that's the spiritual truth and that's the moral principle because he's telling him you got the whole system wrong you got the whole idea of who God is completely wrong and what did we do we took it and we propped up this God who wants to send everybody into eternal conscious torment so that we could sit and judge everybody and tell everybody how they're wrong and how they're sinners and, and, and how they need to get right and believe like us and not have good dialogue and scare everybody to death because my God, you know, somebody prayed with a Muslim. Oh, that's that's part of the end time deception. You guys have been wrong about the end times my entire life. Since I was in the sixth grade or fifth grade or fourth grade or whatever it was, too long now for me to remember, and you said Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist. And James Brady, remember when 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 Reagan got shot and Brady Got, got the bullet to the head. And I remember Walter, I think it was Walter Cronkite. I think he was still around back then. I remember he announced, James Brady is dead. Then he comes back on a little bit later and says, no, he isn't dead. He's, he's alive. And everybody said, that's one of the seven heads. That's a seven head that, that received a mortal wound and died and came back to life. And Ronald Wilson Reagan, see six letters in Ronald, uh, six letters in Wilson, six letters in Reagan. There's the mark of the beast in the name, 666. Ah, 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988. And then you have people that are working, that, that, that are open-hearted and open-minded and reaching out to the people you've judged, the Buddhists and the New Agers and the, and the Hindus and the Muslims and, and all these people, and they're working for reconciliation and they're working for peace. And he's like, ah! That's, that's the Antichrist. That's the devil. That's the devil. That's, that's the work of the devil. And all the time you call Jesus the Prince of Peace. Hypocritical. Alright, get off my soapbox. But do you, do you see the power of the parable? Now you want to say, oh, but it still teaches eternal conscious torment. Okay, what's the answer then? What was the answer for the rich man? Because I don't find the four spiritual laws in there. I, I don't find receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior in there. Just like when Jesus talks about Gehenna being a place of fire, he doesn't say, well, just pray the sinner's prayer and ask for forgiveness. No, he says, if you're, he doesn't say, if your eye offends you and you keep sinning, just keep coming back down to the altar, brother. <laughs> just repent. No, he says, pluck your eye out. Cut off your hand. Well, that wasn't literal, brother. Oh, but a verse later, the, the fire and, and where the worm does not die and all that stuff, that's literal. So, so we know this is metaphorical, but this is literal, and we just pick and choose. All right. <clears throat> you doing all right? <laughs> Last word that's used for hell in the, in the New Testament. <clears throat> Tartarus. Now, if there is a place of eternal torment, this is it. 
And it's used one place in the Bible. And that's in 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned. Everybody say angels. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Even there, it's not a place that's eternal. It's reserved. And people don't go there. Angels. Which gives you a little bit of a problem if you have fallen angels ruling over cities and nations, I'm, I'm just saying. Oops. I mean, I really have to wonder if some of these guys have ever read their Bibles from cover to cover. I mean, it just drives me nuts. I believe it from Genesis to the maps, brother. Genesis to Revelation, I believe this book. I believe this book is the Word of God, brother. I believe it from Genesis to Matthew. I don't care what you say. You're overthinking it. You're, 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 I don't care what some scientist says. I don't care what some, uh, philosopher says. I don't even care what some preacher says. I care what Jesus says. And I care what the Word of God says. And you never even read the book. Because if you read the book, you couldn't say half the stuff that you say. Not even half of it. Cons. Religious cons. Pick in your pocket. All right, I'll get off of it. Well, yeah. What, what did the angels, what angels are you talking about? Or then he goes on and talks about Noah. So anyway, so that's it. So it's a place where, where the angels, and, and so the Jewish belief, again, if we go back and read it and it's con, oh, there he goes again, given the Jewish belief. Yeah, cause that's who wrote the book. The Jewish belief was that the angels had come down and procreated with women and given given um, birth to a race of Nephilim, giants, and all this stuff. And that's why God sent the flood on the earth, was to wipe out the Nephilim seed. And those angels were said to be thrown into Tartarus. And if you really want to look at it, I'm, do, your home, do your own homework. Peter goes on and says that Jesus went down and preached to those spirits that were disobedient. (laughs) He preached the gospel to them. I mean, we really have this God thing all wrong because we've had this whole idea of eternal conscious torment all wrong. So I think we got one more week on this. We'll deal with the Thessalonians verse that comes up about um, that people use, and we'll deal with Revelation and how the word Hades and the lake of fire is used in the book of Revelation. We'll look at that. Um, and then we'll also look, because this may shock you, there, there were six streams of early Christianity after the apostles when it spread around the world. There were six streams. Six. Of those six, only one, the Latin stream, 
influenced by a guy named Tertullian and then later by St. Augustine, only the Latin stream believes in hell as this separation from God in this place of eternal conscious torment. So only one-sixth of the church said, yes, that's what Jesus taught, that's what we believe, and that's the purpose of the gospel. Which is why you do not find, again, I'm going to stress, you do not find belief in eternal conscious torment or hell like we think about it in any of the church councils or any of the early church creeds. Because <laughs> frankly, they didn't believe it was essential to Christian doctrine. And yet people will write me up, whatever, and say, you're a heretic because you don't believe this, and it's because they're ignorant. They're what, what Peter called, again, Peter, when he's talking about Paul, he says, you know, this guy wrote, he doesn't want to have to think, and he feels intimidated by intellect. And he, I know him, and he, he wrote on his page, he, he said, don't overthink the gospel, don't overthink the Bible. And he said, you know, somebody received a vision from Jesus in 1953 and said, if it's not simple, it's not, it's not from God. And yeah, and I wrote on his page. I said, well, then what do you do with this verse? I'm pretty sure that was Brother Hagen he was talking about. Brother Hagen used to say, if you have a vision, if you have a dream, if you have an angel, if you have a visitation from the Lord, but it contradicts the word of God, you go with the word of God. Well, if, if that was Brother Hagen, he missed it. Because Peter says of Paul's writings, because remember, here's what he said. If it's not simple, it didn't come from me. That's what he said the Lord said. If it's not a simple gospel, it didn't come from me. Peter says of Paul and his gospel, Paul writes of things in his letters that are hard to be understood. (laughs) This is Peter saying that. And then he goes on and says, which unlearned and ignorant men twist to their own destruction. And when you have people, they don't know the the creeds, they don't know the early church, they don't know Second Temple Judaism, it's because they're lazy or they can't do the work, especially in this day and age. Or they've done the work and they don't want to change because it will hurt their ministry. To me, they fall in in the category of unlearned and ignorant men who twist the scriptures to sell a religious con to keep their system going. And do psychological, spiritual, and social damage in the process. And I'm sorry if that's a hard pill to swallow, but you've been sitting there waving your Bible at people telling them how to live all this time, and you don't even know what you're talking about. And somebody's got to say it. Might as well be me to ten people. All right. We're an awesome. Ten We're an, you are an awesome ten people. You are incredible. All right. Questions, comments, thoughts. Yes. And if you guys could cut it off, that'd be good because it's hard to follow this stuff online. So, what? Which which reference? Because I've referenced actually three places in Peter. Yeah. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, when you uncover it, when you realize that most of the references to hell is Gehenna, and it's talking about a physical location, it's referencing 
the a verse in the book of Jeremiah where God says, it never even crossed my mind to throw my children into the fire. No, no, this is where it gets even more twisted. This is where it gets even more twisted. Listen, listen to this. So here's where it gets more twisted. We have to go preach the gospel to them so that they have a chance to hear. And then they can be saved. But no one that I've met will say, yeah, they're all going to hell if they have not heard. Most of them will give them a free pass if they have not heard. But once they've heard and rejected... Then they're going to hell. So we're actually condemning more people than we're saving by mission work. That, but that's the truth. Am I wrong? I mean, that's... Hold, one sec, Jared, and let me... As I read the scriptures and look at the history of the church, it looks to me as if they are controlling the masses. Right. That's all, it's all they have. And when people start thinking for themselves, then they start asking questions and they don't have answers. Right. And so they try to shut you up and intimidate you and whatever. And What were you saying, Jeff? Yeah, it is. It absolutely it is. It's, it, well, it's worse than that. It's sending people to an eternity of hellfire. <laughs> You know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think originally it was definitely political because you have the Catholic Church. And then, you know, we, we talk about the Reformers, but these guys were no saints. They were murdering people that didn't agree with them. I mean, John Calvin had people murdered that didn't believe like him. And they, they grabbed for power right away, too. So one of the things that makes America great is they wanted separation of church and state because they understood that, that uh, political religious tie. But now I think it's just perpetuated by... Ignorance, frankly. And there's a certain ego gratification in saying, we got the truth, you don't, we're right, you're wrong, we're safe, you're not. It feels good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we had people in, in our church that supported an evangelist financially, and I did one of these messages, and boy, he got wind of it and did everything he could to undermine me. Um, he called me a heretic, uh, false prophet, but he's worried about his money drying up. Because I completely invalidated that type of ministry with what I'm saying. It makes it completely and totally invalid. And I'm not trying, well, no, really I am, because they, they need to, it, it just needs to go away. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Yep, I was going to go there next week. You, you stole my thunder. But no, 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 it's fine. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the Greek word for eternity, actually, eternity and eternal. There is a Greek word that means eternal. It's used one time in the Bible in reference to God himself. The word that's used for, that gets translated eternity, specifically means in the Greek for a period of time.
true. Yes. Right. Love. Yeah. Jesus never said, Jesus never really said, go out and tell people. Jesus never said, go tell people about me and get them saved. Ever. He never said, go tell people to receive me as their Lord and Savior. Ever. He said, these are the commandments I give you. <laughs> that you love one another. That's it. I mean, how loving is it? Genuinely, truly. Think about this. Now, if you believe in eternal conscious torment, it's a loving thing to do. But that aside, how loving or how much integrity is there in trying to be someone's friend so that you can win them to the Lord? You're not genuinely loving them from your heart. You have an agenda. Go out there with an agenda, mask it in friendship, and get them to come to church. Because we want to get more people in the church, because we get more people in the church, we get more money in the plate. I sound cynical tonight, don't I? <laughs> Straightforward, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Well, you have to understand that the Gospels are being... The Gospels are slanted. This is why I no longer hold to a view of biblical inerrancy because each Gospel writer has a specific agenda and that agenda shows up in their writings. So Luke's specific agenda was to say that Jesus came for those that the religious system had said that God rejected. That's the specific message of Luke. So if we say that's why Jesus came, then we say only Luke's agenda is equal to the mission of Christ. So the mission of Christ was manifold. So why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? Well, it does say he died He died for our sins. Well, here's an interesting thing. <clears throat> and there's a lot of debate on this. But the Bible is very clear, I think, in the book of Acts, in all of the Gospels, that Jesus died at the hands of the religious and political powers. That that's, he was a martyr. Because he claimed to be God. Right. Right. And so, <clears throat> when it says he died for our sins... Um, the idea of for there doesn't necessarily mean on behalf of. It can also mean because of. I'll try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the belief was that the soul departed and went to Hades where it awaited resurrection 
or reunification with the body. That was the belief at the time. So what the church, the early church thought was that that happened. It's, it's this right here, actually, Jared. Um, this, this painting here. So this is Jesus in Hades. This whole area here is Hades. And this is actually Adam. And this is, I don't know. I mean, you can see, because it's, again, church and state. So if you look at most of these paintings, they're like older um, Greek, Russian, Orthodox paintings, things like that, or Roman Catholic paintings. So you usually have, like, like people with crowns and whatever that kind of represent the state, too, blended into the painting. But this is Jesus. This is the cavern, if you will. And because Adam's here, then this is actually, you know, I don't know which one's the just or the unjust. But here's the chasm that Luke talks about, and there's the cross. So this is Jesus on Holy Saturday taking all of the souls out of Hades. Yeah, it does. Part of what he came here for. What don't you understand specifically? What don't you understand specifically? And I'll try to help you. It's Yeah, to answer that question from a Second Temple Judaism, Second Temple Jewish perspective, it's not relevant now. Because all of the Christians understood, yeah, all of the Christians understood that Jesus um, emptied Hades and conquered it, basically. Basically, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, it's what Paul said. So, Yeah, but it wasn't always that way. In their belief. Right. Yep. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't have. No, it's okay. I don't have a belief because I don't know. I can tell you what really what the early church believed. I can tell you what the writers believed. But how do we really know? I mean, how do we verify it? I mean, people in the Bible thought that the earth was flat in some places, and they believed that the the stars were just a canopy and that they were gods and actually that above the stars there was a canopy of water and that's where the rain came from. And we know today that that's completely false. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, can I can I be honest with you? For the first six hundred years of Christianity, reincarnation was a belief within Christianity, and it was removed because of a political agenda 
from a emperor and his wife. Now, that's not to say that the church at large taught reincarnation. It's just to say that they accepted the belief in reincarnation with no problem. And and so just to mess with your mind a little bit with reincarnation, if you don't mind, in the book of Job, Job says this. Job says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Now, we interpret that, naked I was born and naked I'll die. But that's not what he said. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return to my mother's womb. Jesus' disciples, I'll give you two more. Jesus' disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So how could he have sinned unless it was in a previous life? And then one other place, Jesus said, who do, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say that you're Jeremiah, who I think had his head cut off. Uh, I can't remember who else, Elijah maybe, John the Baptist, who was dead, or one of the prophets. So there was definitely a belief in reincarnation in the early church, and Jesus never corrects it. And a lot of your church fathers that gave you belief in the Trinity, that decided the books that would go into your Bible, have quotes in there where they believe in, in, in lieu of, instead of purgatory, instead of eternal conscious torment, God would send people back into another life to learn their lessons. That goes over great on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know. Death is a mystery. Yes. Oh, no spoilers! No spoilers! I haven't seen it. Don't don't t- don't tell me about Endgame. I think that's a possibility. See, here's what bothers me. Here's what bothers me. If we are supposed to develop our souls, if we're supposed to learn and grow from our experiences in life. And if we're not, then what's the point? Um, but if we're supposed to learn and grow and develop our souls, and if, if, if true spirituality is the raising of your vibration to a vibration of love, then this message, not the one I preached, but the one I was kind of debunking, does none of that. We tell people, pray the prayer. When you die, you're going to go to heaven and be glorified. <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything going on in your emotions. Don't listen to your emotions. They'll lead you off, off track. And we don't emphasize. In fact, we, we, it bears a fruit that's the opposite of love and openness and acceptance and non-judgment and reconciliation. It's the opposite of that. It's we're right, you're wrong, God hates you, God's going to send you to hell. We'll start a war with you. And if you think our hell's bad, you should see the Koran. Because <laughs> the Muslim hell is is far more graphic. In which case, who's right? I mean, the Muslims believe we're going to hell. We believe the Muslims are going to hell. How do we know who's right? Right? So here's my problem as a pastor. If I start telling people, well, if you just pray this prayer, when you die, everything's going to be fine for you. But what if that's not true? What if you carry your same soul with you and the condition and state of your soul into the afterlife and what if 
It's amplified. So in other words, if you have anxiety now, what if you have anxiety ten times worse when you don't have a body to absorb it? Now I've done you a disservice. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? But I really don't think God is going to look at me on Judgment Day and say, well, you really messed up. I mean, you were trying to help people love people, and you were telling, you just told them I was too good. I just really wasn't as good as, as you told them that I was. And so, to hell with you. Now, if it's that God that they talk about, I might be in trouble. But I don't believe that God created everything. It's too simplistic. How could the God who created galaxies and universes and multiple dimensions like we were talking about in quantum physics and a variety of animals and bugs and minerals and plants and different foods and different colors want us all to look the same and be the same and say the same and only save a smidgen of us for so what and so that we could do what? So that we could sit around and worship God all day? I love that when Jamie said I mean you guys have heard me say that too, but if if all we're doing in heaven is singing worship songs to Jesus I'm curious what they're doing in hell. <laughs> I'm thinking it may not be too bad. Maybe they're having a party down there. I know, I know my friends were having more that aren't here. I'm not seeing any of them. And they were having more fun than I was when I was in church. Maybe they're having more fun now. I mean, seriously. Like, wow. I just can't believe God's that shallow. So I also don't believe God's got an ego problem and needs to be encouraged with, with exaltation and praise all the time either. No wonder most of my friends have left me. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yep. I know. Oh, I love I love you guys. I I meant my my preacher friends. I was thinking about my preacher friends. All my invitations have dried up. Not that I care, but My invitations have dra- dried up and my inbox is full. <laughs> you know the really the really sad thing, some of the some of the people that we would bring in when I was burnt out um, two years ago and went on sabbatical <clears throat> and I shared with them some of them that I was burnt out, they they avoided me like I had the plague. Which was really bizarre to me. It was really bizarre. I, I didn't understand it. Um, still don't. Um, and then I didn't hear from him at all. And then I posted, I must have posted something about hell on Facebook. And I mean within a couple of minutes, this person that I hadn't heard from when I was struggling contacts me and says, but we love you. <laughs> you know, now they're worried about my soul because I don't believe in hell. And I didn't know belief in hell was actually what got you saved. I thought it was belief in Jesus anyway. Yeah, yeah. So you can be struggling, burnout, we don't care. But you say you don't believe in hell, and all of a sudden now we're concerned for your immortal soul, brother. Yeah. Yeah. But this message is spreading. I mean, it is. It's it's getting out there. Nancy Collins preaching it, or something similar. Jamie Englehart, you know, he he was with us Sunday, but he's he's got a lot of influence. He's preaching it. 
Um, and there are a lot of other guys out there with much greater voices than me and much more articulate than me that are that are spreading it. So evangelicalism, as we've known it, is absolutely dying. Yeah. Mm, everybody like when they die? Is that what you mean? Let's ask Richard. What do you think, Richard? You know, the multiple lives thing, let me just say this about multiple lives. It's interesting. How important is whatever your problem that you're dealing with right now? This will take a minute for you to process. If you've lived, let's say, a hundred previous lives, a thousand previous lives, you don't remember any of those problems. This is just, and if you screw it up, I mean, we, we, we put so much stock in, oh my God, if I make a mistake in this life, I better not do this because if I make a mistake, I only get one shot at it. I mean, how much pressure is that? You only get one life, you only get one shot at it. But what if that's not true? What if we've had hundreds of shots at it? Then you don't take yourself so seriously. And Because eh. <laughs> I do believe that we're developing and growing. I believe we're here to grow. I believe we're here to learn something. I believe we're here to experience something. And I don't think that we just suddenly are... It's over and we're just in bliss after it's all over because then what's the point? I think there is an ongoing growth and progression and development of our soul, perhaps in different dimensions and different realms. Maybe some of us come back here to help. Who knows? I have no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, I sure prefer that to um, eternal conscious torment. <laughs> And there's a lot of research, scientific research. What's interesting is there is a lot of scientific research about past lives that is very supportable, and I'm talking about thousands and thousands of interviews and research papers. So what do you do with that? Right. Right. 
what Richard's saying. Yeah. No, you're saying exactly what he was saying. Yeah, he was saying it's non-duality, that we all came from God and we all go to God. And yeah, it, it is the same, you know, typically, the because the, I've looked at some of them as well. Um, Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, sir. I was talking to somebody today, and I asked them, so Jesus says we could do what he did and more. Do you know anybody that has done that in the last 2,000 years? So we have to get to this conscious level. Yes. Yes, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and when you think about it that way, frankly, you want to come back. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, if, I, if I think, if I understand where this thing's going and the human project <laughs> from God's perspective, you know, it's interesting when you look at DNA, only... of your DNA is actually working. The other 97% is turned off. (laughs) That's probably the same for my brain. I've heard different numbers, and I don't know how they measure that, but yeah. Yeah, and then, but then, okay, so let's do this. Let's say you use 14% of your brain, because that's the best estimate I've heard. But 97% of the DNA in your brain is turned off. Which means you're only using 3% of the 14%. (laughs) So what happens when the human being gets to the full capacity of just what's in their DNA through evolution? What's a human going to be like then? See, I, I want to see that. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, so here's another one, just to stretch everybody even further. Is Earth the only planet that has human beings made in the image of God? I know, right? <laughs> Well, I thought I knew. <laughs> I thought I knew what I, who I was and what happened when you died. <laughs> Dang, I don't even know how to do a funeral anymore. <laughs> Didn't you guys enjoy Jamie? I, I love, if nothing else, I loved his 30-minute commercial, whatever it was. Because <laughs> there was so many one-liners in there that I've said too, you know, like he started on the Lucifer thing and I was just like, oh my God. Uh, it's just amazing, you know. When you really study the Bible, which, I mean, that's the thing. When you're really studious, people start coming to the same conclusions. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Yeah, I like where you're going with that. To be, it's interesting because again, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, even human beings weren't in the image of God. Only kings and Pharaoh. So when when Moses right or whoever wrote, um, God made man, humanity. It's plural in the in the Hebrew, humanity, in His own image, male and female. What He was doing was actually elevating all of humanity to the level of kings. We take it for granted human beings are made in the image of God because we've heard it so much. That was actually good news to them. So who's to say that just because... So what I'm trying to say is back then kings thought they were the only ones in the image of God and here we are as human beings thinking we're the only ones in the human <laughs> image of God. You see what I'm saying? So who... Yeah. I mean, I think God is that ground of life that's in everything. Has to be. Right. Right. Which really brings up the problem of evil because then God is the life in that sustains. Yeah, I created darkness and life, good, good and evil, yeah. And I, I, I still contend that it's polarity and that we label polarity as good or evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of life is experienced on a polarity. You can't know hot if you don't know cold. You can't know light if you don't know darkness. You can't know self if you don't know other. You can't know male if you don't know female. So it, it all exists on a spectrum of polarities. And so what we call evil is just the other side of the spectrum of what is good. Pleasure, pain, that's another spectrum. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, life is non-dual. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. I really think if if you watch, you brought up the Marvel movie. I really think Doctor Strange. I I, I think that when 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 the ancient one knocks his astral body out of his, and he goes and she talks about different worlds and some of them being dark and evil and some of them being higher and a place where thought and and matter merge. I really think that's my understanding of the cosmos, really. I mean, I saw that movie. I was like, whoa. (laughs) I got it from a movie. (laughs) But but that was our... (laughs) But yeah. So you have denser, darker entities that are on the dark side of the polarity that we call evil. Hmm? What? I don't know exactly either. You have to become comfortable with uncertainty around here. 
Sorry. <laughs> On the lighter side. Yes, thank you. I enjoyed the way you looked at that camera and pointed at it and told them we have been lied to. <laughs> Well, I'm putting it up on Facebook tonight, so. All right, we better go. Love you guys. Bless you. Thank you.